Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Already in February, Matt. I can't, you know, where did the, where did the start of the year go? Put up, I say... <laughs> We should just put up the Christmas trees yeah, and decorations now, because basically it's going to be December before we know. Oh, it. I know, I know how. We're getting old. Shh, we're getting old. That yeah. sounds as signs of age. <laughs> yeah, I think I knew that a while ago. Well, Matt, it's great to be back in the in the studio, and uh, I'm excited. Stu. I am too. Into the New Testament. Oh yeah, John. Um, the I felt like John. for me it was just right timing to get oh. back into the life of Jesus. So I feel like, you know, at regular points, I'm so glad there's four Gospels um, because, uh, I, you know, I just keep coming back yeah. to this story and and uh, and it's been great getting into John. Man, it is, there's so much detail in this. Yeah. So this yeah. is, our, Stu, I think going to be four-hour session today. Uh, well, that's first, how much time I put aside. First couple man, of chapters. Sure you, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it's been great coming straight out of Isaiah into it too, because there was yeah. so much of kind of the, the yeah, pointing forward the to Christ yeah. Yeah. straight into the spot. And even some of the, 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 the prophecies, you know, we actually see the, those things happening right in the first couple of chapters of the Gospel of John. But let's uh, welcome listeners. It's great to have you with us. Uh, mm. This is Thrive Deeper. And we are embarking on a journey over the next three months through the Gospel of John. Uh, the Gospel of John, just just for clarity, was not written by John the Baptist. This was the Apostle John. That's um, right. The events probably took place uh, AD 26 to 30, um, but the book was probably written AD 80, maybe 90. Uh, In any case, after 70, there are a number of indications uh, of that. You know, I mean, he calls the, the Sea of Galilee Tiberius, and yes. it was only later uh, in the first century that that came to be known as Tiberius. He refers, alludes to Peter's death. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so you're definitely looking after it yeah. sometime after 70 AD. It's interesting uh, that scholars really can't quite nail down exactly when. No. Any time from between sort of 70 and in the 90s somewhere mm. Uh, is, mm. is most probable. Mm. There's actually, you know, the, interestingly, that the, the 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 oldest fragment of the New Testament that that is surviving is a fragment of John's Gospel oh, wow. from one thirty no, AD. Yeah. Wow, and go. that's and that's amazingly close to the, uh, you know, because the data, you know, ancient they had, manuscripts, yeah. uh, you know, um, wore, wore out. Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, even the earliest full new uh, full uh, new, new Testament is only. You know, uh, you know, two hundred and fifty years, which again, in in terms of Historical the provision, yeah. yeah, like accuracy and mm. preservation of manuscripts is amazing. Because yeah. from that time, we have so many in so many different places that yeah. uh, that we have yeah, gr- like amazing attestation yeah, to amazing. what was written. It's amazing. So, and yeah. the first audience would have been to Christians living in sort of the Roman Asia mm. at the time. Um, Mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Yep. He, you know, mm. he translates a lot of Jewish, he explains a lot of Jewish ideas. So yes. he's got a Gentile And there's uh, some Greek, Greek context. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's, yeah. there's the Greek, you know, language even in, in the words. Yep. Anyway, um, the gospel is a little different. John's gospel is a bit different to the other gospels. Sure uh, is. The, the, the other ones are what known as the synoptic gospel, gospels. And, and, and as I said in the intro, we did the other gospels tend to look at theology from a historical point of view. It's very yeah. chronological. Yeah. Uh, whereas John is kind of coming at history from a theological point That's of view. Right. Who yeah. is Jesus, and, yeah. and and what does what does that mean for us today? And so the gospel, more than any of the others, really emphasizes strongly a personal relationship with Jesus that's built on. Faith in him and yeah. and his sacrificial death, and so he he you know he skews the 
chronology of the synoptic gospels. So, yes. for example, they have the cleansing of the temple as part of the all of that last uh, that last sort of Passion Week. Yeah, uh, you know, Jesus comes in triumphantly and then he goes and cleanses the temple. That's all sort of at the that's the last. Mm. You know, it's part of the last section. Whereas John puts that right up front, front yeah. and the sense is almost that Jesus' whole life is a kind of Passion Week. You know, is because John. In the, this first chapter of John, he re, there's a strong sense of him announcing who Jesus is, yes, and uh, and the you know even the miracles that he chooses to put up front, the signs I should say mm. that he puts up front, including the sign of the cleansing of the temple, is seen as a sign, mm. is really an announcement of who actually this is. So it suits his theological purpose. He's yes. introducing Jesus in a theological sense. Yeah. Let's mm. jump into chapter one, the prologue, as they as they would call it, which really sets the scene here. And yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, we could spend a week, Stuart, oh, on sure the could. first line. But it's re- interesting here, you know, he, he starts a bit like Genesis in the beginning, of, mm. you know, very very purposefully sort of uh, evokes that idea. Now, of course, we, we know that in the creation narrative, uh, you know, we see God creating things by speaking, you know, by God's word, everything was made. And so he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, he was uh, in the beginning with God. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV. For this, I've actually chosen ESV, which is a more literal translation. It gets you closer to the yeah, to the Greek text, which is for for a very detailed text like this. I quite like yes. getting a little closer. The significant term there is the term behind word, uh, Stu. Yeah. Uh, it's the Greek word logos, mm-hmm. and by this uh, by this stage. There are a couple of streams that there's so much behind that word, mm. uh, you know, and, you know, you could, books could, you know, written really a, about this. Particularly in the ancient world. P- particularly really in the ancient world. Yeah, that's right. Philosophical as well as theological. Yeah, and, and it's interesting. Really. That's the interesting <clears throat> thing about John's use, a choice of this word is because mm. there are two, there are two distinct but increasingly related in, in these times you know uh, Jews were very much mixing with Greeks and and, mm. and with Hellenistic culture and then mm. therefore with with Greek philosophy so you know Paul the Apostle Paul for example is someone steeped obviously in Jewish thought but he's also uh, you know very much a fay and very much across uh, Greek philosophy as well yeah. you get that sense uh, that that throughout his writings certainly John uh, you know, I think is bringing a couple of streams together here. Mm. The, on, on the Greek side, uh, the word logos uh, referred to as the sort of rational principle, uh, kind of the mind of God in all things. Yes. So, so they, the dominant um, philosophy at this time was Stoicism, Greek and Roman Stoicism, and they had this idea. They were sort of a pantheistic faith, really. A pantheism means that you identify the world with God. They were a kind of sort of pantheism in the sense that they believed that the the universe was a sort of manifestation of of God, God you know, yeah. and um and that through and in the midst of everything, you know, because they you observe that everything moves in this clockwork fashion. Everything, you know, you plant tomato seed becomes a tomato. Everything's got, you know, these uh, yeah this sort of rational principle. Everything yes. unfolds rationally, yeah. and so they referred to that. They had this sense that. All of creation, in a sense, acted like a mind, like one big rational mind. Yeah. And they referred to that rational principle at work in all things as the logos, logos right? Mm. And that was their their kind of their idea of God in some sense. God infused in, you know, everything. in, 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 in everything. 
And so it's interesting that he's working with this idea because it was an age-old idea. It begins uh, right back uh, in uh, early Greek philosophy in a, in a philosopher called Heraclitus, and it's and it you just see it repeating through Greek philosophy mm. as as a sort of major idea. And in the Greek culture at the time, of course, that spoke heavily into purpose and, and yeah, that's right. the whole reason for existence. And, yeah. and so very powerful word from a Greek perspective. Yeah, that's had a right. Different, had a different connotation, of course, for the Jewish audience. Well, yeah, it had, it had a, a different but related. And, and actually, uh, Jewish scholars like Philo, a very famous sort of Jewish uh, uh, scholar who sort of brought Greek philosophy and the Hebrew scriptures together, you know, and, and a little too much probably in Philo's case. But certainly they were recognizing the, the elements of resonance with this idea, this Greek idea of the Logos. Okay. Uh, and, and a long sort of tradition of personified wisdom in the Hebrew tradition, the Hebrew mm. scriptures. Mm. So first of all, you've got the idea of God creating by the word. And then gradually you get this increasing sense of the personification. So wisdom is uh, seen as, as as something almost personified, yep. something to pursue. And, it, mm. but, and in a way that uh, that sort of prepares the way for Jesus as the embodiment of of God's uh, of God's word. word. Yeah, right. So so there are a couple of couple of rich streams from the Hebrew tradition. This this idea of personified wisdom, the Greek tradition of Sort of reason, divine reason embodied in the universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, John's he's really, but ultimately, and this is the thing that I that I actually appreciate about this because he's not being combative as such. You know what I mean? He's reaching out here. Yeah. You know, he's an evangelist, and this he's this trying actually to find speaks. The connection that's right. This really, this actually it? speaks uh, to to the main purpose yeah. of this gospel because yeah. uh, very explicitly, John says the main purpose of this gospel is that you would believe that yes. Jesus. Uh, is you know is the Messiah of the whole world, right? Mm, mm. Is the King of the whole world mm. and the Savior of the whole world. Okay, mm. so he's appealing to Jew and Greek alike here. We're using this one. I mean, it's a really brilliant term to use be- because of the two streams yeah. that uh, that that this word sort of ties together. And of course, he ties together in in Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of this. You know, because for the Greeks, the log is like the ultimate sort of truth, yeah. and they sought to live life in a you know Stoics. Big mantra was in you know in accordance with nature, and you live in accordance with nature, and by that they meant by the natural principle at work right. in the world, right? right. Yeah. Uh, and so for them, you know, the logos sort of determined how they should live their lives, right? Well, you know, John is saying, pulling that same idea from embodied wisdom, he's saying this is Jesus is the embodiment of this ultimate truth, yeah. this ultimate principle of truth, right? Yeah. Uh, as it is in both the Hebrew and the Greek tradition. So there we go, listeners. Verse one. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's so I, much. I feel like I've only just started. <laughs> that's right. You know, it's because great. I mean, I love the fact that you know that in, in a sense, truth is actually embodied in a person. Oh, yeah. It's not. It's not just an abstract formulation. Mm. Ultimately, truth is a person, mm. uh, and takes personified, you know, personified form. And and ultimately, that's that's in Jesus. And so he goes on to use um, the. The symbolism that he uses, there's so much symbolism in the Gospel of John. Light and darkness is a big one in in the Gospel of John. And so he says in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So he has this view of truth that if truth is made manifest, darkness, which is very much around this idea of deception and actually dispels naturally. Once the truth, you almost, you don't have to, 
be perturbed about the darkness, just shine with shine the light, light shines, yeah. right? And and he's drawing on this idea of light as well from the Hebrew tradition because uh, Israel understood that they were called to be a light to the nations. Mm. But then, and of course, we've just read uh, through Isaiah. Isaiah, yeah. uh, Isaiah both refers to this idea of Israel being an, a light to the nations. And he says, nations will come to your light. You know, Isaiah chapter 60, nations will come to your light. But there's also a sense in Isaiah that that there's a particular, the servant of the Lord in some ways is going to be in a very particular sense, a light to the oh, nation. Yeah, but yeah. through him, we will become that that light. And so there's this sense here, uh, we also need to in sense, embody truth in such a way that we shine uh, as, yeah, as right. a light. Now, that, yep. you know. It's interesting the word overcome there, because it seemed, <clears throat> and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And you understand that from the point of view. But in, in the translation I'm using, which is a little different to you, it also suggests that that could be grasp or comprehend. Yeah, it, yeah, that's you know, right. Which kind of also speaks to the world, the darkness of that was could just could not understand. Yeah, what that's this right. Was, yeah, know. yeah. So there's a there's possibly a, yeah, yeah, yeah. a bit of a double meaning there. Um, he states his purpose when he introduces John because uh, you know John bears witness. He's he's the, the the witness. You know, he's calling a witness forward. Mm. Right. This mm. is because he wants to establish who Jesus is. Yeah. And and the in in the in the first century, the way you establish the truth of a testimony is He's by calling on a witness. witness, right? And in the Jewish community, evidently, John actually was quite, even at this stage, was quite well-known and well-remembered as a prophet. And so calling on John, this well-known Jewish prophet, mm. for a Jewish audience, mm. uh, that had a lot, of, uh, a lot of credibility. So he reminds them that he bore witness to this. So he says in verse 7, John came as a witness to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. Uh, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Yeah. Um, so there, you know, John states his his purpose that all might believe uh, through him, and he that that's uh, repeated elsewhere in his gospel. Then there's this interesting clash because he comes into the world, but the world doesn't know no, him. Right? There's yeah. this sense that in in this prologue and and verses one down to eighteen uh, is a sort of an introductory prologue. Some refer to it as a poem. Even okay, uh, because there's a very poet poetic uh, element to this, but it's very dense in symbolism and theology as mm. he introduces mm. yeah. Jesus. Because you don't get this, you don't get no, this sort in, of prologue in the other gospels. No, you don't. Yeah. They start more in sort of Jewish narrative, uh, you know, the Hebrew narrative fashion, just getting jumping into the story. In Matthew's case in classic Hebrew fashion with the genealogy, mm. you know. Yeah. Um, but John has this very theological. So straight away, you know, this is theology. He's got this very dense theological, and and, and I would say, kind of philosophical introduction. And as essentially, well. he's kind of saying, why does any of this actually matter? Yeah, <laughs> you know, why do these historical facts actually matter? Well, because this is why. They yeah, matter. that's right. And yeah. one of the things, one of the the streams that runs through John's gospel is the clash. It's like Jesus comes in. Into the and there's this immediate clash, right, with with human agenda and, mm. and human rebellion. Right, uh, this clash between darkness and, and light. And so uh, he says, you know, he was in the world in verse ten, mm. and the world was made through him. Yet the world did, did not, not know him. He yeah. came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Yeah. So here he's introducing this uh, th- this this clash. And then again, you get and, and verse twelve really is in a sense, the summary of why this is all written. But to those who did receive him, mm. who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, uh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Yeah. And of course, we're going to, you know, the idea of being born of God, born again, born of the spirit. 
it comes back in John chapter 3, of course, famous chapters, discussion with, with Nicodemus. Yes. But he's introducing it at the start because they didn't get it, right? And, yeah. and he's straight away, he's introducing this idea. They didn't get it because it, it required, this is such a paradox, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, and particularly for Greek-speaking peoples, because in a moment he's going to say the word became flesh. flesh. And that's yeah. going to be a problem uh, for Greek thinkers because the, the, this rational principle, even though it drives all of the physical it's world. It's not personified. It's not personified. It's, yeah. It itself is is perfect. It's like this perfect inner blueprint. What mm. Plato referred to as the forms, this kind of uh, this blueprint that you know uncorrupted uh, by mm. physicality. Yeah. But he says the word became flesh, and so there's so how can something be perfect and 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 be embodied? You know, to be yeah. physical in the minds of lots of Greek people yeah. is to be inherently um, well. In at, at this you know at this period, probably you would say inherently. Not well corrupted in some sense, yeah, and not outright evil, but corrupted, yeah. And so there's a paradox here. So, yeah. so in the context of this, you know, I mean, Paul says, you know, this is foolishness to the Greeks, right? When he mm-hmm. talks about the gospel, he says it's foolishness, yeah. you know, to the Greeks. And John is anticipating this and saying, well, this is such a paradox. All of this, you know, the darkness did not understand the light yeah. and so it takes this supernatural rebirth in a sense to, to really understand yeah, this. he's introducing stuff. this idea yeah. right at the start you need yeah. to be born of God to yeah. even begin to recognize uh, who Jesus is mm. and then of course uh, as I said 14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us now this is an interesting term here uh, Stu it kind of goes back to the Old Testament goes, tabernacle thing that's right it really? it's yeah. actually literally means to pitch one's tent the yeah. word yeah. Uh, uh, skeno in, in, um, in Greek in, is, is pitching a tent and of course this alludes to the uh, to the tabernacle and so, in a sense, Jesus is is the tabernacle in the midst of the people. Yeah. He is the presence of God. So, the tabernacle, in a sense, John is uh, saying, and this is after the destruction of the temple. So, this is significant because, you know, the Jews are still really reeling and 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 adjusting their faith at this. You know, whenever this was written, I mean, really, well into the second century. Mm. Uh, the Jews are still adjusting to this disaster of the destruction of the temple. Yeah, I mean, to this yeah. day, yeah, exactly. uh, you know, at the, at the, the, the Western Wall, mm, they mm. referred to as the Wailing Wall, mm. still lamenting the destruction of the temple, right? Yeah. So imagine at this stage, this is a, still a fresh event when John is writing this. And, and But what he's saying to this people who have lost their temple, their tabernacle, mm. Jesus is actually the real one. He's the real one. He's in our midst, right? He, he, he has pitched his tent. And, and the other thing that really jumped out at me, and it's interesting because it's only in John's gospel that that term tabernacle or tabernacled yeah. uh, dwelled with us was used. But the tabernacle of the Old Testament was an earthly building filled with the glory of God. Yeah. And so now we have Jesus in an earthly body. Yeah. Filled with the glory yeah. of God. You yeah, know. Because it's in the, pretty much in the same light, and the word became flesh, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting because Paul <laughs> speaks about his body as a tent, as an mm. earthly tent, mm. you know, that he'll, that he'll shed, uh, of course, to be, uh, to be uh, renewed in the resurrection. But there's, yeah, there's the sense there that, that. And then, of course, Jesus, which we'll come to later when he went in the temple, yeah. tear down this temple and I'll yeah. rebuild it in three days. Right. I refer back to that same yeah, kind of, right. I'm the tabernacle in yeah. a sense. So anyway, I'm yeah, jumping so, ahead. So, no, it's good because, it's because this does tie, a lot of this stuff ties into everything that he's going to talk about. Yes. So, you know, I, I even wonder, I mean, 
this is speculative, but I even wonder if he if he wrote the whole thing and then wrote this the prologue at the it, end because I feel like this there's so many strands yeah. uh, of this you know this idea of Jesus being the tent uh, and and I think this is partly also why that event of the cleansing of the temple mm. because it's it's the prelude to him saying this is who I am right mm. Mm. and right at the start of of the gospel is there's all of these events that basically declare who Jesus is, right? Yeah. And so this is why I think John needs that account up front, because it's a very loud declaration of who Jesus is. You know, yeah, he is the, the temple of God in our midst, and he alludes to that uh, in the passage that you're referring to. It's also significant, actually, here that it says we have seen his glory, right? Because one of the things uh, about the uh, the temple, uh, the second temple, and by the second temple, I mean that the the one that uh, was built in Ezra's time, yes. okay, and that was renovated by Herod. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll say a little bit more about that when we get to the, that passage, the cleansing of the temple. Uh, so Herod greatly expands this. But one of the things, one of the issues for the Jewish people is that they expected the glory of the Lord to come to his temple, right? You know, the glory of the Lord was meant to appear to the people in the temple. In the temple. But that hadn't happened, right? It, it famously it happened uh, with the tabernacle with, in the time of Moses. Yes, happened uh, in the time of Solomon when yep. he built the, the glory of the Lord appealed to the temple. Yep. Yeah, filled the temple, appeared to the people. Right mm. now, interesting that didn't happen when when Ezra built the you know built the tabernacle. You might uh, recall the story about how the people wept and and mm-hmm. you know because not only because it didn't. You know, it didn't seem to match the temple of former times, but there was sense of this isn't quite it. And the point is, it actually wasn't, wasn't. meant to be quite yeah. it. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, they were meant to rebuild the temple, but uh, but the glory of the Lord was still coming, right? It was yes. the temple that were meant to rebuild the temple. It was meant to prepare them for the time. And, and indeed, Malachi alludes, not just alludes, but speaks very directly to the fact that the Lord is going to come to his temple, right? Mm. Um, so the glory of the Lord is going to come to the temple. So, um, so when John says here, "We have seen His glory," he's he's speaking to something that, uh, you know, that was a big concern for Jewish people that the, the glory of the Lord is meant to be manifest in His temple to God's people. Well, he's yeah. saying, the Word became flesh, the yeah. idea of the tent. He, yeah. he dwelt among, tabled among, and we have seen His glory. Yeah. Right? The glory of the Lord has been manifested yeah, to well, us. That's great. And he talks about um, as of the only son. The the, the word there, astu, uh, only, uh, is the word uh, monogenes, which is in Greek, mono being on, like only, but genes is is like um, a genera. You know, we get the uh, like a species, or you know, we, okay. we in in a sense. So it's the he's the uniquely very right. unique. You right. know, okay, he's the the uniquely. The one who is uniquely the Son of God. God so, yeah. uh, and he's full of grace and truth. Because the other thing uh, that the Jewish people were very concerned about was what about the the faithfulness, like the the loving kindness of God. And there was a Hebrew word, Hesed, uh, that's used throughout the Old Testament that denoted the covenant faithfulness of God. And and again, this they, they you know the Jewish people were looking for God's faithfulness. You know, where is the king? Mm. Like we haven't got a king. Mm. The glory of the Lord hasn't returned to the temple. Uh, the temple has been even been destroyed, right? So how could God even allow that? Well, he's saying no. I mean, he's going to show, show them no. God has actually built His temple in our midst through the resurrection, as Jesus says. Yeah. You know, tear down this temple and I'll, I'll raise it again it. in yeah. three days. Yeah. Right. And not only that, but they've. In Jesus, seen the glory of the Lord. Plus, also, He is the the King, 
uh, he is really the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so grace and truth is are the Greek terms that John is using to um, to to sort of grasp at this idea of covenant faithfulness yeah. uh, wow. of God. Uh, so that's about fulfillment, grace and truth. That's great. Take a deep breath, Stu. Yeah, How yeah. are we? It's great. It's great. <laughs> Maybe, there's so much yeah, in this, isn't there? Uh, there's, yeah. yeah, there's a lot. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, so he comes back in verse 17. You know, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through, through Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. See, yeah. the law promises things, the law points to things, but the law cries out for ful- fulfillment, right? Mm. And the idea of fulfillment is is this covenant faithfulness of God. The word hesed sums that up. And so he says grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So mm. in a sense, uh, the grace and truth uh, that fulfills the law came with Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying there. Yeah. Uh, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. So there's this sense uh, of uh, of this revelation of God. So in a sense, that's kind of saying, although we can bring, we, we can contribute nothing really to our salvation through through Christ, essentially, yep. it depends on us receiving Jesus for who he was. Yeah, that's right. If we're going to yeah. actually, yeah. Yeah, that's right. As I said, the, the, the bit about the testimony of John the Baptist is important because testimony, particularly of someone of this uh, stature, is, yeah. really, is really important. Um, you know, they, the, the Jewish people... As, as John points out, and we have this in the synoptics as well, say to John, who are you? Mm. You know, you are, uh, Now, the interesting thing is here is that John denies being Elijah and he denies being the prophet, both of which actually he sort of is. Yeah, you know what I mean? But it's interesting that he denies yeah. those two things. And that's partly because because in the, in the synoptic gospels and by Matthew the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and yep. Luke, yep. Uh, you know, Matthew has, actually has – you know, recalls Jesus saying, no, he is Elijah, He's right? the Elijah to come, yeah. essentially, yeah. John's issue more is with the way that they understood that. I think they literally understood that Elijah literally would return, right? Mm, right. So in that sense, no, I'm not Elijah. Mm. But actually what, what he was doing was coming in the spirit of Elijah, right? Yeah. Which is, yeah. that was the point, you know, one who comes in the spirit of, spirit of Elijah. Right. Of course, remember the spirit of Elijah was passed on to Elisha and there was this sense mm. that, uh, that one coming in the spirit of, of, of Elijah would and prepare the way, right? Yeah. And so he, so the, he's the prophet also because remember Moses talked about a prophet that would come. Yes. Um, and in Malachi, there's the prophecy that Elijah would pre- precede the day of the Lord. Yeah, that's kind right. Of thing and yeah. So he is, but not you know. So so there's a point in him denying this, in that he's not literally Elijah, but he does point to the fact, and and this is we come back yet again, <laughs> due to Isaiah. Yes, right, because exactly. he quotes Isaiah. He does. He said, "I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness." Mm. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. That's Isaiah 43, if you want to look it up. 40, verse 3. Now, the interesting thing about this, I love the way that this sits with what we've just read, because Jesus is the word, but John is the voice. Ah, Yeah. Jesus is the word. John is the voice declaring the word, bearing testimony to the word, right? And not only that, but there's this sense, what by using this verse, he's not only announcing that this is his role, he is the voice, he has this prophetic sort of role of preparing the way. But he's basically also announcing a new exodus because that uh, passage in Isaiah was initially referring to the exodus. But the one of the problems with the Jewish people, because they were still, they were under Roman rule, I mean, which had been definitely by this stage made very explicit. Right? Yes. Yeah. You know, the Romans yep. really had come in and, and really ta- you know, taken the land back uh, doubly. The Jews actually 
through the time of, of, of the life of Christ, actually still had this sense that they were still in exile because they were ruled over by a foreign, uh, by a foreign power. Right. So they wanted to be, uh, you know, set free, so to speak. completely set free, right? Yeah. And for for a hundred years they were actually beginning with the time of the Maccabees, and anyway, mm. that's history. Mm. Uh, but but then the Romans came, and so they felt there was this kind of captivity, right, under 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 the Romans. Um, and of course, Jesus was at pains to say, "It's not a political captivity that I'm setting you free from, but yeah. you know, Isaiah 61, I'm coming to set you free from this spiritual prison." Right. Yes. So, so um, John is is announcing that this uh, that this that he's preparing the way for the one who's going to come and bring about this exodus that they're all expecting. Right. This yeah. this new freedom. freedom from captivity. Yeah. Um, they. Then they ask him, "Why are you baptizing?" Now, the it's it's kind of provocative him baptizing. The reason is, Stu, because baptism was not unknown. I mean, use for okay for a start, the use of water was well known. It was the priest would bathe in water. Yeah. It was had this idea of purification uh, all around. Uh, you know, Israel, in particularly in the temple area, have uh, mikveh. This uh, mikveh, which are these pools that step with steps down and, and mm. they would wash in these pools. Um, the, the community at Qumran had them all over the place. They had this cleansing. But they, that, would, that was this idea of water and cleansing. But baptism, uh, the Jews did baptize people. Do you know who they baptized? They baptized pros- Greek pr- proselytes, right? Uh, so so oh, okay. Greek, uh, um, pe- non-Jewish people yeah. were seen as sort of unclean, right? Yes. Uh, in in making them proselytes, they would then baptize, baptize them, them, right? Because to say, well, look, you're really unclean. Yeah. You know, we're the clean, you're the unclean. So to become a part of us, you need to go through baptism and and, and right. be cleansed. So now, who is John baptizing? Yeah, well, Jew- exactly. Like Jewish Jews. people, yeah, right? He's right. calling them to be baptized, yeah. right? and that's kind of yeah. uh, provocative because of this idea of cleansing. They're like, hang on a minute, we're cleansed by the temple. We have access to the. We're cleansed by that. Mm. So this is why the Pharisees say, "Who? Hang on, who, who do you think you are? You know, uh, doing this, yeah, baptizing the, these people, people. You yeah. know, and you know, if you're neither Elijah the prophet, then what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Well, he's saying, I'm. This is essentially what he says, and and this goes back to his. You know, I'm. I'm not the light. I bear witness to the light. This is a preparation for one who's going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Mm. Mm. And there, John is pointing to the very much to the uh, inauguration of the new covenant that they were expecting. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, in various scriptures, Ezekiel chapter 36, Jeremiah chapter 31, Joel chapter two, I will pour out my spirit on, on your offspring. There was a sense that the Messiah would, would, uh, you know, would bring, would bring the whole, the, the Holy spirit. Yeah. And so he's saying, I'm preparing the way for the one who's going to baptize you in the Holy spirit. And this is going to, you know, this is, Preparation. Yeah, this is preparation this is, yeah. essentially. So, and while he's baptizing, that's of course, as we know from the synoptics, uh, that's when Jesus comes to him yes. and, and is baptized. Now, the interesting thing is here, though, Stu, we're in, we're not in the synoptics. We're in John's gospel. Mm. He doesn't even mention mm. Jesus' baptism. Mm. Uh, now, and and partly that's because he's making another. I, I think he's making a different point, and I think John. By this stage, John is assuming that people are familiar with the Synoptic Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels were circulated right, right from the beginning. Right. Yep. Um, and and I think he's assuming that people know the story. That's not, again, the that's, thing, not, the purpose that's of his, not the purpose of his gospel. Book, yeah. He's reflecting theologically yeah. uh, on, on these things. So what he wants to emphasize 
is who Jesus actually is, right? Mm. And so, so what he does include is the John witnessing the Spirit coming, coming on to, upon Jesus, Jesus, right? Yeah, uh, because that, you know that's important for who Jesus is. But he declares in that moment, John, when when he sees Jesus, he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of who the world." The world. Yeah. Now again, I mean, we know this really well. Any any of the Jews standing around would say, oh, 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 "Hang on a minute, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God is, is on the doorpost. The that's blood right. of the Lamb of Passover. God is on the doorpost of the Israelites, not the Egyptians. Mm. Right? That's what mm. sets us apart from the Egyptians." Okay, yeah. So, yeah. so, so, what are you talking about? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, John is announcing that this this is the Messiah of the whole world. This is now a universal message. This is the this is, yeah the universal true sacrificial lamb because yeah. as you say the Jews used the lamb as a sacrifice for the Passover feast which celebrated deliverance from Egypt which continued on obviously yeah, beyond that right. Isaiah spoke and we've just come out of that of the suffering servant as the sacrificial lamb yeah, that's right um, and now John's declaring and this is who that lamb is and, yeah and, and personified in Jesus yeah that's right and then he bears witness to the Holy Spirit coming, coming and, down and and again he repeats uh, he on whom you see. Uh, because he says, look, I didn't know him, which uh, he says here to the people. He says, I did not know him, but... Well, John, of course, he knew him. They were cousins. What he's saying is, I didn't realize like, that he was the Messiah when we grew up together, in a sense. Yeah. And, and it, was, it was when it was actually at this point, in a sense, that he, when the Spirit of, comes upon that him, he recognized. that he can recognize him and declare you know, yeah. that he's the Lamb of God. Which takes away says, the sin of the I've world. seen and I testify that this is yeah the, the son, son of, of God. God. So again, you know, you got these big announcements of mm. who right up front, like in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That realization sort of comes slowly, yeah, you know, because yep. they, they're more. It's more about the story about how people gradually, at least, well, the disciples gradually realize this. But John wants this stated right up front. So in the call of. Uh, you know, to to illustrate the fact that Jesus is greater than John, you know, he has this story of, you know, the disciples of John when Jesus comes and they leave John and follow Jesus. And John's really cool with that, like he wants that uh, because, you know, Jesus uh, Jesus is the greater. Uh, you know, they go and follow Jesus. One of them is Andrew, calls his brother, uh, you know, finds his brother, you know, we've found the Messiah, you know, like, so you've got all of these announcements. So, so, so far we've got the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God. We've got, this is the Son of God in Mm. uh, verse 34. We're still in chapter one here. Mm. Uh, Verse 36, again, the Lamb of God. And then verse 41, the Messiah. You've got all of these big titles being thrown out uh, right at the front. And then he changes Simon Simon's name. name, yes, and again, this is a exercise of authority. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to change your name, in a sense, indicative of the kind of transformation that he's actually going to bring. So when we say he, we're talking Jesus now changes Jesus changes Jesus Simon's changes name. Yep. Simon's name. That's right to Cephas mm. uh, in in Aramaic, which means rock, rock, right? And Peter in Greek means yeah, rock. that's right. Peter in Greek means rock. So mm. you know, the idea here as Jesus. You know, said uh, says, and we read this in Matthew chapter sixteen. Uh, Upon this rock, I will build my church. He's going to be, uh, he's going to be the sort of, you know, the leader of the of the early church. And it's possible, like Andrew was the first disciple called. It's possible, we don't know that John was the, the second, because um, it, it sort of says his brother. Um, yeah, which is possible. That's John, the person writing the yeah. book here. Um, not that it's yeah, important, yeah, that's but that's, right. it seems to be the most likely. Yeah, and then you get Philip and, and Nathaniel, and and yep. you know Philip uh, goes, 
you know, goes to Nathaniel is we've found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. You know, so you get these these really big confessions here. You know, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. You know, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like what? I mean, Nazareth, is, you know, was a small village, a bit of a backwater, you know. So and and then Nathaniel comes to him and and Jesus you know says I saw you even and this is interesting because Jesus says I saw you uh, when you were sitting under the fig tree. There's this theme throughout the Old Testament that God's you know God sees us, God watches over us. You know Psalm 121, He watches yeah. over our coming and our going. Yeah. And Jesus says I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree. Like this is like a divine. And, and it's not just a throwaway statement. This makes Jesus sound like God. I yeah. saw you. I was watching over you when you were sitting on. And, and Nathaniel's just blown away yeah. by this because surely enough, he was sitting under a, a, a fig tree. And, and he's pretty impressed by that. But Jesus says, listen, uh, you know, you believe because of this. I'm gonna actually going to show you. You're going to see greater things. Uh, and he says to him, truly, truly. And it, whenever Jesus says, uses that form, he's going to say something important. I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Mm. In other words, alluding to the Jacob's the Jacob's ladder. He's saying, I, I'm going to be revelation to you. Mm. You know? Mm. And so yet another announcement of what Jesus said. This connects right back before we go into the first story. Yeah. This can takes us right back to the beginning, beginning. Where Jesus is this revelation. He's the open because open heaven means vision and revelation, right? Yeah, right. So uh, you're going to see heaven, uh, heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, uh, which was Jesus' which is, favorite term for when he, yeah. he of himself. He, he he it was his favorite description. Well, yes, it is in, in in the synoptics. But here it's significant because we have this list of titles. I've just gone through all the titles. Yeah, yeah, Son of God. And son he of adds David. to this, yeah. you know, Messiah, King yep. of Israel. I mean, we've got them all, honestly. Mm. Uh, the one about whom Moses promised, uh, you know, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, now the Son of Man. That's Daniel chapter seven. Mm. Uh, and I saw one like the Son of Man, ancient you know, being days. you know yep. coming to the uh, ancient of days and sitting. Mm being seated at his right hand. So yet another big announcement of who Jesus is. And this, sen- this sense of angel- angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man is this sense of continual communion and revelation. Man, it's, yeah. it's rich because, of course, angels brought revelation in, 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 the Jewish, in, in the Jewish mind. And that basically leads right into the first story because we're talking about revelation here. And Jesus, and straight away, uh, the first two stories that are told are where something is revealed. Now, everyone knows the story of Jesus, you know, changing the water. It, you know, if you're, yep. if you're a Christian, you, you know that you know that story really yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, revealing something about Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about this, Stu, who actually knew, for, knowing what you know about the story of the water changing into wine. This is not a hard question. Okay, good. I'm looking. I'm worried. <laughs> Let me ask you this: Who actually knew at the feast that that had actually that Jesus that 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 actually happened? Right, because the master of the feast is just yeah. like, oh wow, he's he like he, he says, oh, the, the, you know, Don't how good how good are the hosts, mm. you know, of the mm. wedding that they've mm. uh, you know they've saved the best wine to last, and the mother of and Jesus' mother, Jesus, Jesus' mother, and the servants, of course, yes, because yeah. they they know. So all of the distinguished guests, right, the the master, 
None no of they're, they're, you know, and so you've got this. This is what's interesting about the story. Mm. You've got this hidden, this sign, but it's like hidden. Mm. And the only people who know are Jesus, Jesus' mother, who really in this story, the way that the interchange happens is that she exemplifies this kind of faith, right? Uh, this this humble faith, right? Do whatever he t- she says to the servants, right? Yeah. This is interesting. Right. She says to the servants, listen, she pulls them over. This is all happening. You know, she, listen, just do whatever he tells you to do, right? And they do do whatever he tells. And they see this miracle, right? Mm, the servants. Mm. These are, This is like... The, these, the servants aren't even invited to the feast, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that it's Down in the back room, yeah, and yeah. and like, you know, the, the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God is often, you know, portrayed in terms of a feast, right? And so, wedding feasts were, you know, were, were almost sort of indicative of 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 this kind of kingdom of God sort mm. of situation. And so Jesus does this amazing miracle. You know, he he provides the wine, which is the symbol of you know joy. And you know, Jesus talks about new wine, and, and there's so much symbol yep. symbolism uh, in the wine. Uh, has this, uh, you know, Jesus uses wine, of course, in communion, and so mm. there's so many levels of symbolism. Well, the, also, I mean, the water that the, he turned to wine was actually the purification. Yeah, that's it was right. Yeah. for purification, and so now we've got that change to wine, which in a sense symbolizes purification is no longer. That's right. Through this, yeah, yeah, it's that's now right. through the blood, of, you know, because wine's for us in the sense of yeah. communion, and it symbolizes the blood of Christ. That's so right. There's so much. Yeah. So, so, so in, in a sense. And, and this probably introduces an important idea throughout the book of John, because because the things that Jesus d- does in the synoptic gospels are referred to as mighty works, yes, right? Yep. They're works of great power. But in in John, they're signs. Mm. Now, look, they had this significance too in the gospels. They're still, you know, they still have this. Uh, it was more the context in which they were shared. Yeah, but yeah. they're re- explicitly referred to yeah, as signs, signs in John yeah. John's gospel. So they have this theological significance and authentication of who Jesus was. Yeah, that's know? right. And the interesting thing is because both this story and the next story, which is the cleansing of the temple, Jesus is messing with uh, with with ritual, right? And you know, because he has this authority, we've been introduced to who Jesus is, and now we look at the things that he does. He changes things. So purification, you know, th- these are these are sacred. You don't. You don't use those for any other purpose than for purification, right? But Jesus, you know, Jesus uh, uh, instructs them to um, you use the jars in that way. That's right. Uh, fill them with water, mm. but then he changes the water to wine, right? Yeah. And so, as you say, there's this uh, this sign here that the old system of cleansing is going to be replaced by a new something new, right? Mm. But it's all in secret, Stu. It's all it's it's th- there's this secret behind the scenes. Uh, miracle that no one really knows about. I mean, it's questionable whether even whether any of the other guests. Probably, that it seems to be that the disciples uh, were, were in on this, uh, but it wasn't like because um, they says it said in verse eleven, this is the first uh, of his signs. Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, manifest his glory, and his disciples, disciples believed, believed him. in him. Mm. Right. So the disciples. So there's this inner circle of people: Jesus, Mary, the disciples, and the servants. Right. Uh, which I think. It, there's this beautiful sort of hiddenness. This is this quiet behind the scenes sign. But then as we go into the next story, we have something that's very public. And it's interesting because the changing, and I should say just before we leave the the, the changing of the water to wine, there's something significant about this. As you said before, Stu, you know, water was this idea of cleansing, right? Cleansing from sin. Jesus, you know, and hence the baptism thing we were talking about yeah, just that's right. before. You yeah, know? that's yep. right. And then wine, of course, comes to symbolise the shed blood of right. Jesus, mm. the joy of the new covenant, and so forth. 
for the, the people hosting the wedding, the family actually hosting the wedding, running out of wine was oh, yeah. about as bad a problem as you could. It yeah. was actually, you would be publicly- Humiliated. Be hu- absolutely humiliated, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. you got all of these guests and you're expected to provide wine. Now, mm-hmm. weddings actually went for a number of days. You know, to run out of wine would, would have been shame, right? Mm-hmm. And so what Jesus does is that he takes away their shame. Yeah. It's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. He takes away their shame. Uh, and this is such a beautiful introduction, beautiful, quiet introduction to these people having their shame lifted off and being celebrated. The, the, you know, the, the master, the sort of like the MC that they're brought in. He's like, oh, you guys are how good, you know, yeah. you guys are so yeah. generous. You yeah. know, you've saved the best wine to normally, you know, the normally best wine's out first yeah. because by the time you get to the end, you can't, you can't taste the wine anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. doesn't really matter. So, you know, yeah. and yet he, you know, he commends them. And so this beautiful yeah. sense in which their shame has been taken away, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's a it's a beautiful symbol of what God, yeah. of what Jesus oh, does, right? He yeah. lifts lifts our shame. The cleansing of the temple is, uh, N.T. Wright refers to this event as like burning a flag. You know what I mean? It's not just a, you know, it's almost like, uh, like a symbol of, the when you do something like this, yeah, like yep. this is really, like, really significant and very provocative, you yep. know, to yep. to to mess with this, right? Uh, but he, you know, this is this is a an indication of of his authority that he's bringing this cleansing into the temple. Now, we look, we know the story, and the story's in in the in the synoptics. But I want to just highlight, Stu, when he cleanses the temple, you know, the money changes and all that. We we know that. Now, what's the problem here? One of the, I think, one of the biggest problems here is that all of these money changes, they would have been in the court of the Gentiles, right? Right. And uh, if, if you, uh, if listeners, if you uh, Google a picture of Herod, uh, um, Herod's temple, right, mm, mm. which was different, different, slightly different layout, interestingly. Herod actually, that, well, under the instructions of the, the Jews um, at the time, added some features to, to the temple right. uh, that they felt was not a problem because they wanted to make divisions, right? They added the divisions. The temple was just a massive, initially a massive big courtyard with this building, this tabernacle mm. in the midst. Mm. Now, what they did is they added walled areas, right? That's what right. they added for Herod, Herod's right. temple. Right. And you can see this. If you look, a pic- look up a picture of Solomon's temple and then look up a picture of Herod's, Herod's temple. temple. And in Herod's temple, you, you'll see an, an enclosure within the temple enclosure, right? right. And, okay. and so you had the, 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 uh, the temple courts, then the court of the women mm. that, that was, was one division. And that separated those inner courts from, from the, the what G- they referred to as the court of the Gentiles, Gentiles. right? Because it was said in, in, in Kings, in the time of Solomon, that, you know, that this is going to be a place of prayer for all nations, right? So Gentiles were welcome to come to the temple. This is the whole yeah. point of the symbolism yeah, yeah. of the temple, right? Yeah. But the, the Jews had built this wall, right, and, and that separated the sort of set first, second class, mm. and they had this court of the Gentiles. Mm. They would never have dared to bring the money changers into the into right. the inner court so of the temple. In a sense, yeah, yeah. it was double standards, really. Yeah, it was double standards, you know, because that was a kind of profane thing that was happening. Yeah. So, well, oh, let's put that in the court of the Gentiles, yeah. you know. Although, let me just say, I think it's important to understand, this is these are people who have travelled a long distance to come for the Passover festival. You know, they yeah. do need to find animals to sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. The, these people were performing a service they to were, the travellers yeah. and money-changing people who come from different places. So, it's, it's not about what they necessarily were doing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's not that Jesus was anti-commerce or business or yeah, anything like yeah. that. These things need to happen at 
it was it good, was more good where point. and why. Yeah, you know? good point. Mm. Um, because it was a necessary service, mm. you know, and, mm. and money did need to be changed, and people mm. did need to purchase, uh, you know, per- you purchase animals. But and, back and to so your forth. point, yeah, then, which was a really good one. But but the point was is. Uh, you know, was around the heart of this. You know, it's like, well, we'll put this. Um, uh, you know, did it those have, guys don't matter so much? Yeah, so we'll just put it out. There. Yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, it, look, the, the changes needed to be pretty close to the temple because the you know the animals couldn't get injured or, yes. or yeah. you know defiled in any way. Mm. You know, out in the muddy streets or so forth. I mean, there were market. Pl- there are, and you can still see them today in the in in around the uh, the, the temple walls. You, you see, actually, the remainders of market stalls uh, still today. Oh, wow. Actually, um, the old market stalls. So they were right, you know, adjacent to the to the temple. Uh, there, there were plenty of places uh, for for buying and selling. But you know, Jesus is saying, "Listen, my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations." That's what he emphasizes, yes. right? Yeah. And you've you know you've crowded out the court of the Gentiles with all this hubbub of sales and and. It's so it's become like this profane area. It's not mm. meant to be like that, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, and, and this is, you know, one of the the ex- this exclusivism uh, in the very literal sense of the word, excluding, is one of the issues that you know that Jesus is going to have, uh, you know, with with this people. And so, um, because he's coming to be the Lamb of God, yeah. takes away the sins of the world, world, yeah. right? And this was an ongoing uh, challenge for the Jewish people for quite some time because when we were working through Corinthians and Galatians you know Paul was constantly speaking about the sense of the separate standards that they treated the yeah. Gentiles that they did yeah. with the Jews and so it was an ongoing yeah. challenge for the Jews yeah obviously. and of course you know the Jews take issue of course they take yes. you take issue with that and that's when he says because they say what what sign are you going to show us mm. and he says destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up well uh that's provocative. I mean, first of all, he's claiming to be the true temple. He's well, first pre- of all, they're thinking he's talking the physical temple, which took 40-something years yeah, yeah. to build. Yeah, that's and they right. go, well, how are you going to do that? It took us, you know. But he's talking about his body because, exactly. of course, and as John has introduced this idea, he is the tabernacle, yes, right? that's right. And, and he's going to raise it up in three days. And mm-hmm. the resurrection is going to be the sign, the mm-hmm. key sign mm-hmm. uh, that he is the Messiah. The, the resurrection becomes the key authenticating sign that, that he, he is, you know, who he is. So this is rich stuff, Stu. There's a little bit at the end of chapter two, but that actually is an introduction uh, to its works as an introduction to chapter three. Um, but we have this amazing picture of who Jesus is. You know, this is uh, a Jesus who who comes to cleanse, you know, lift shame and comes to, cl- he, he, you know, he takes away sin. And, and we see the clash here because some are receptive to that and some are not, right? Jesus will be a savior for whoever is willing to acknowledge him, to believe in his name. That's John's message. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive. Thank you.